Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. Today I'm chatting with Gregory Cahill about his graphic novel, The Golden Voice, The Ballad of Cambodian Rock's Lost Queen published by Humanoids in 2023. He wrote the book, and Kat Bauman did the art. Gregory Cahill is an Emmy Award-winning television producer for the CBS entertainment talk show, The Talk. His previous TV credits include 24, Mad Men, and Medium. Um, you're actually my second uh, Mad Men-associated guest. I had a, a buddy who works on Johnny Cash, who uh, worked on Mad Men as a consulting historian. Um, in 2006, Cahill wrote and directed a short film titled The Golden Voice, depicting uh, Rosere uh, Sotez's uh, final days. I'm going to ask for some tutoring on the pronunciation there. Her final days under the Khmer Rouge. After years of research, he began uh, work on a graphic novel, also titled The Golden Voice, depicting her life story. The Golden Voice, the ballad of Cambodian rock's lost queen, is his first book. Gregory Cahill, uh, Gregory, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. Thanks for having me, Mike. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you right up front. Um, please give me a quick uh, second tutorial on the pronunciation of her name because I know I just butchered it. Oh no, no, you did quite well. Her name is Rosarai Setia. Rosarai Setia. Okay. Um, so I'm I'm super excited to have you on the podcast because, as I told you, I've been following the development of this book on social media, and I'm thrilled that it's finally coming out. Um, the Golden Voice combines so many things that I work on and I'm interested in graphic history, Cold War era, Southeast Asia, and um, you know, the the search for um Southeast Agency and resistance in history. And I think the book's really commendable there. Uh, but before we get into the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, uh, to be frank, your career is a little different than most of the uh the academic guests that we have on new books. So um uh who is this Gregory Cahill, and 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 how did you come to be the author of this book? Yeah, I mean, my background, as you described, is film and television, and that has been my passion since I've been a little kid. And uh, you know, storytelling, and you know, finding new uh, stories that I was unaware of uh, is always exciting for me, and. Um, I started off I'm from Boston, Massachusetts, and I went to school in New York City, and then I came out to Los Angeles in 2005. And I started off, you know, making coffee and driving scripts around town on the show Medium. And uh, I was on that show for six years, worked my way up. And then, uh, as you mentioned, I did Mad Men and uh, 24. I, I've also done some feature films as well. And I've been on the talk for quite some time now, I think eight years now. Um, so I'm the line producer over there. So I oversee their budgets and schedules and crew management. Um, but on the side, I I make my own stuff. And um, as you mentioned, the Golden Voice short film uh, was a project that I did pretty recently after I moved to LA. Um, it was about a year after I moved here. 
And um, that kind of kickstarted this whole process, which uh, I'm sure we'll get into soon enough. But yeah, my I had never written any books prior to this. And in fact, The Golden Voice was intended to be a film first, and it found new life in this new format, which was actually a really exciting uh, change of pace for me. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I did a graphic history from an academic perspective, and um, I, I think it's just such an amazing medium. And, and what I've been enjoying seeing is so many uh, characters like you and me who actually don't really have a background in comics getting involved in exploring that medium. Um, so you, uh, you told me that your interest in Ro, uh, Rosary uh, Satea uh, was sparked by the um, the 2002 uh, thriller City of Ghosts, uh, a film, American film starring um, Matt Dillon and James Caan. And it's actually a film that I, it's one of my guilty pleasures. I, it's all shot on location in Phnom Penh. And um, I, actually, I had some friends from uh, from Phnom Penh um, back in the day who were extras in it in uh, the, a couple bar scenes. Um and you noted that you were struck by the soundtrack of the pre nineteen seventy five uh, Khmer rock music in the in the film, and it's a very very sort of eerie sort of a lot of ambiance in that film. Um, was this your or your origin story for your interest in Southeast Asia or Cambodia, or just something that nudged you down the path of um, of this artist's history? Yeah, there, there's kind of two beginnings to this whole thing. In City of Ghosts, I'll, I'll talk about that one first. I um, my sister is a huge cinephile and a huge fan of Matt Dillon. And I was home for Christmas in 2005 and she said, he's got this new movie out. You'd probably like it. I think you'd like the music in it. You should check it out. So I'm like, all right. So I, I sat down and watched City of Ghosts. And, you know, to be frank, is it the best movie? No, no. but <laughs> but did it did it end up changing my life? Yes, um, it there. There still was, you know, plot wise, character wise, it's a little schlocky, but um there is something about that film that that really stuck with me. And I, I think the having that authentic portrait of, of Phnom Penh at that time is it's, it's like a time capsule. Um, and it, it captured something that you'll never see again. Um, so that aspect, the atmosphere of the film, as you mentioned, is very powerful. And that's one thing that stuck with me. But the thing that really st stuck with me and my sister was dead on was the soundtrack. And um it had all this, Matt Dillon did a great job curating this really great collection of um, pre-Khmer Rouge, Cambodian rock and pop and folk music. Ooh, Matt, Matt Dillon actually played a, ro a role in that? He's a he's a big music head. And oh, cool. Yeah, he... he he's he's one of those stars I always wanted to, I always wanted to think was actually pretty cool. He's a cool guy. <laughs> um, I've met him and he's, yeah. he's, he's legit. He, um yeah, when he was, he was in Cambodia, like, I think in the, in the 90s. And I think he went around to, you know, there were all those kiosks that sold bootleg cassette tapes, which he took an interest in. And that's how he got turned on to this music. And he liked it so much that he wanted to include it in his film. So um, I ran out to Amoeba Records here in L.A. And this is back when you bought CDs. And I, I bought the City of Ghosts soundtrack. And I remember that was on just nonstop repeat in my car for months and I couldn't get enough of it. And there was one singer in particular that I was really taken by. And, and I, I was reading the notes in the CD and it, it mentioned that all of these singers that you were listening to had been killed in the killing fields of, of the Khmer Rouge back in the 70s. And that's when I said, wait a minute. And this 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 takes us back to the the other origin story of this thing. 
Um, I was really drawn to this. I mean, not only because the music was so good and the history behind it was felt so important, but I actually had a something else from my childhood. Um, when I was two or three years old, so this would have been 1984, 85, um, I grew up in Massachusetts. And I remember my parents had this huge party in our backyard. There were probably 100 people there. And there was like a volleyball game and a cookout. And I remember playing with all these kids. And I remember most of the people at the party didn't speak the same language as us. And um, they were foreigners. And I remember asking my mom, who are all these people? And she said, all these people had to leave their home because something terrible just happened. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, these people had to escape from the killing fields. And I didn't know what that meant, but I, it, it made a huge impression on me as a kid. And basically what that was is back in the 80s, my parents were helping out, um, taking care of this big group of Cambodian refugees who would just come to the Boston area. And this was the early 80s. So this was right after the fall of the Khmer Rouge. And these people had come from a refugee camp in Thailand. And my parents were helping them get set up with apartments and like used furniture and used cars and all that kind of stuff just to kind of get everyone back on their feet. And they had like this big welcome to the U United States party for all these families. And we still have pictures of it. And so when I was learning about what happened to these singers now in 2006, I called my dad. I said, hey, do you still keep in touch with any of those uh, Cambodian people from back in the 80s? Because I didn't know any Cambodian people in L.A. And he said, yeah, there is a guy we keep in touch with. And his American name is Bernard. And he was living in Providence, Rhode Island now. So I called Bernard. I introduced myself. You know, I said, hey, listen, you know, I'm, I just, you know, got out of film school. I live in L.A. now. And I'm, I'm really interested in making a, a short film about this Cambodian singer from the 70s who died in the Khmer Rouge, but I don't know anything about her. And I was like, you know, I know this is probably a long shot, but I'm wondering if maybe you know anything about her. And uh, he said, well, what's her name? And I said, I think her name is Ross Seri Sothi. And he started laughing and he's like, I think you mean Rosa Isatia. And okay, I was like, have you ever heard of her? And he started laughing and he's like, He's like, brother, if you're Cambodian, you know exactly who she is. <laughs> so that's how I found out, you know, she's probably her and this other male singer, Sinsisimut, they are the biggest celebrities in Cambodian history, you know, by far. And still to this day, even with the younger generation. Yeah. So Sinsisimut uh, so, was, was sort of a, a crooner. Yeah, I always, I always imagine him in, in like a, a smoking jacket kind of thing. Right. Very, very yeah. suave. Yeah, th this guy Sinsisimut, he was he's he's the biggest Cambodian celebrity yeah. of all time. He also sadly disappeared in the killing fields. But um, yeah, he was a, a singer, composer, songwriter, instrumentalist. Um, and he was also kind of her mentor and singing partner for many years and uh, really looked out for her. But um, I guess we can get into that in a little bit. But um, anyhow, um, in June of 2006, I got together with the Cambodian community in Long Beach. It turned out the biggest community was right down the street in Long Beach. Absolutely. A huge community, very yeah. small and proud community. Yeah. yeah. So um, I got in touch with a lot of people in the community. We put out a casting ad and we put together this short film called The Golden Voice, which um, we shot in the L.A. area back in 2006. And um, we premiered it with the Cambodian student organization at Cal State Long Beach in October 2006. Now, when we did this, I figured 
it would be the, a couple of students, a couple professors, me, you know, my girlfriend, and that would be that would be our big premiere, right? I'm 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 laughing because I've I've done some of these, what I thought were going to be small academic events, and and the Cambodian community showed up in mass. Four hundred people showed up. Four hundred people. That's fantastic. It was unbelievable. People sitting in the aisles and yeah. standing. And yeah. So I'm like, okay, all right. So then um, I wasn't expecting that. And then um, you know the film starts playing. You hear her music and Sophia Pell's you know, portraying her on screen and the thing comes up and says Phnom Penh and the whole auditorium just exploded. And I was like, oh my God. And then after the film, people were in tears and, and coming up to us. And we um we had Sophia the star sing one of her songs at the Q&A and we had 400 people singing along and cheering and clapping. And I was, I was just kind of like, what, what have, what have we tapped into here? I, I was, I was really um flabbergasted. And so it made me realize that wow, this is this is indeed a very uh, important story, and so that's what started me on the journey of doing really in-depth research and going to Cambodia and meeting her family and putting her life story together. Um, and for the next 10, 11 years, um, you know, I was constantly tweaking and rewriting that script and trying to get a film made. Um, but getting financing for a film like this is not the most straightforward thing. It's not, you know, it's not a recognizable IP that you can just sell to, you know, a distributor. So a lot of people were very interested over the years, but ultimately it never happened. Um, and we got to 2019 and I said, you know what, you know, I'm tired of begging people money and, you know, there's gotta be another way to do this. This story's too important. I don't want to just let this you know, collect dust on a shelf somewhere. And so my wife is actually a big collector of manga, Japanese comics. And I'm looking at her bookshelf here with all the Japanese comics. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, that's a great idea because it's still a visual format, right? We can still tell the visual story of this movie I have in my head. And, you know, I don't need anyone's permission to do it. You know, it's not like a movie where there's a, you know, five, $10 million budget and you need 60 producers and all this kind of stuff. And so I, I, I decided to go that route. And I think having a background as a filmmaker was tremendously uh, helpful because I was able to storyboard out the whole thing in my horrible rudimentary drawings. But then, you know, I hired a, a real artist, Kat Bauman, who did an incredible job uh, turning this into a properly illustrated book that really elevated the the story. And um, I guess we'll get to the soundtrack later, yeah, but that was yeah, another yeah, we'll get to the soundtrack. Yeah. No, that, that's, but anyway, I, that, that's kind of the, the basic origin. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, so many fantastic things. And I, and I really, I really feel you on the um, not knowing how to approach designing a graphic uh, novel or graphic history and, and turning to film. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not a filmmaker, but have written about film and I thought about it more from the perspective of what I know about storyboarding and so forth uh, when I did um, my book on Hanoi. Um, oh, and that's so, um, I, I, that's such a powerful story about premiering that film at, um, at Long Beach State. And that I, I was just involved in a couple other um, uh, events down in Long Beach. And yeah, the community turns out and um, representation is so important. Um, uh, so fantastic. Um, so Tell us a little bit about the music scene in Phnom Penh in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And I know there's a documentary film um, called Don't Think I've Forgotten. Is that the title um, about that scene? But it was, yes, it is. It's it's this 
um, un unknown to many outsiders, it was this really vibrant music scene. Um, again, late 1960s, uh, early 70s, really up to the Khmer Rouge. So tell us about that. Yeah, so music has always been a huge part of Cambodian culture. And the head of state after independence from France, Prince Nordam Sihanouk, he, he understood this very well. And he pumped a lot of government resources starting in the 1950s into making music and uh, sponsoring music. And so in the late 50s and early 60s, the government had a million orchestras and a, a million music ensembles. You know, the, the Ministry of Finance had a music ensemble. The, the Ministry of Defense had a music ensemble. You know, it, there was there was an excuse to make music everywhere. And and and, and Sienuk himself was famously uh, a saxophone player. Correct. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, he I mean, recorded he his own albums as well. Yeah. yeah. And he founded the National Radio of Cambodia. And besides news, music was a huge component of that. And that's how these these singers started to become celebrities in their own right was through the radio because that was the one thing everyone listened to. Um, so you had all this official support of these musical groups for years and, and that gave rise to a lot of experimentation because Sihanouk was kind of a you know very cosmopolitan guy and he brought in musicians from Cuba and the Philippines and the United States to teach the local bands different musical styles and that's why you hear so much Latin influence and in a lot of that early 60s mid 60s Cambodian music um so they were in and and, and later, I don't know if this is true, but they say that during the Vietnam War, uh, the radios in Cambodia would pick up American rock and roll being transmitted from the military bases in South Vietnam. So that that's, was another. Yeah, that's what I've, I've heard that, too. And then and, and especially after yeah. 1970, you start to see a bit of an influence of the psychedelic rock into mm. the into what's going on in Phnom Penh. Um, yeah, but 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 before the, the coup in 1970, the music yeah. definitely had a more innocent yeah. quality to it yeah um more playful quality to it and i think it took on a harder edge after the military coup which was more of that like psychedelic heavy you know led zeppelin kind of influence um but anyhow uh yeah in the 60s there was also the rise of the private record company so you had the state-sponsored uh ensembles you had the state-sponsored radio but then you also started getting these entrepreneurs starting their own record companies and karaoke they, they did make karaoke-esque uh, recordings as well where you could mute the vocals and sing at home if if you had a machine um so anyhow uh the private record companies uh, were contributing to the celebrity of some of these singers you know particularly Sinsisimut and Penran and Mao Saret and Somat and then um in the 70s after the coup the record labels were it because the radio was no longer interested in supporting art it was all propaganda at that point and so the the if you wanted to make music on a in a creative way it would it would have to be done with a private record company at that point or with the film industry and the film industry was booming in the 70s despite the civil war they were churning out movies nonstop. And the movie companies liked to hire these famous singers to be on the soundtrack because that was a great promotional tool for the film. They'd release a single with a songbook, and that was a way to tease the movie before it came out. So that became another major source of employment for a lot of singers at that time. So that's kind of a nutshell overview of the industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, and it's, and it's, 
it's yeah. this period is so fascinating in Cambodian history because you really do have this vibrant urban cultural life. And a lot of it is um, money coming from um, Sihanouk uh, up to 1970. And, and um, you know, he's fancied himself as a patron of the arts and, you know, inspiring a Cambodian Renaissance um, money for film. He was uh, money, money for music and he was a musician, money for film. Uh, and he, he fancied himself a filmmaker as well. Uh, also money for architecture. And um, yeah, you have von Mollivan's architecture. One of his, yes, uh, that's one of my favorite uh, contributions of his to Cambodia is the the New Khmer architectural movement, fifties, sixties. It's and sadly, a lot of that stuff is is you know going the way of the wrecking ball, which yeah is terrible. But um, you know, it, yeah, it's um, re really good that yeah, that New Khmer style of this like sort of. Um, uh, you know, global South modernist. I don't know quite what the correct architectural terms are, but it's really striking. Yeah, uh, definitely has this modern style, but clearly uses um local idiomatic um architectural motifs. Um, and like there's a there's a, a theater and the stadium and a couple other really significant buildings. But it is all to say that like I, I think yes. un unbeknownst to you know many uh, North American uh, listeners, um. Cam Phnom Penh was this really vibrant, vibrant uh, urban scene, and then the coup happens in 1970, and and you move into this period of of military rule, and there's more repression. But um, and I and I think the culture does take a somewhat darker and and more desperate turn as the both with the military repression and also the um the dramatic increase in American bombing and the the refugee yeah. crisis in Phnom Penh. But yeah, all the while that urban that urban culture is really thriving, and especially especially that youth culture. Um, so uh, yeah, I, th I thought your book did a fantastic job of, of recreating that. Um, and, and, and I loved it. So, so tell us about the, um, the, uh, the main character, um, the, 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 in this, um, this history, Rosary Satea, who, who is she? What, what does her life represent? How does she fit in the scene? Um, tell, tell us her story. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'll start it kind of the end point where I came in and, and work backwards. But, you know, it's like, why her? And a lot of people say to me, why didn't you make a book about Sin Sissimut? He's the biggest star and, and blah, blah, blah. I mean, beyond her being a more interesting protagonist from a storytelling perspective, um, just subjectively, her voice, man, her voice is just, she's just, uh, you know, I, I'm a huge music head myself, but it is rare that I've ever encountered a singer who can do what she does. Because even though I don't speak Khmer, when she sings, you feel exactly what she's feeling. And that is such a rare gift. And her voice can give you the chills and can put tears in your eyes. And it's just, she just emoted with her voice in a way that I think is extremely unique. And there are very, maybe some opera singers have that capability. And But, but in terms of pop singers and rock singers, very rare. And I just think that she was one of a kind. And, and that was part of the reason why I really wanted to put a spotlight on her because outside of Cambodia and outside of the community, the Cambodian communities in the United States, not many people know who she is. You know, you have your fans of Dengue Fever and your fans of Sublime Frequencies and the Cambodian Rocks compilations. It's like, yeah, there's that little subculture. But beyond that, you know, she's she's relatively unknown which is such a tragedy because she I, I in my opinion she's one of the most talented musicians i've ever heard in my life and 
you know, I think she, she is just kind of the, you know, the, um, how do I say the personification of like the human soul, you know? And so that's, that's, that's the reason why I wanted to, to really uh, delve into who was she? So who was she? So interestingly enough, you know, she came from a very humble background. She came from a family of subsistence farmers. Uh, Her father was in the French army. And after that, he was a painter and her mother was a farmer. All of her siblings were farmers. And, and, you know, like she's from Batambang, which is a small city in Cambodia's Northwest. And it's primarily a rice farming area. And that's precisely what her family was involved in. Closer to Um, Thailand, closer to Thailand than it is to uh, uh, Phnom Penh and and what was was a part of the Siamese kingdom for for decades. Yeah. Yeah. so, you know, but but Batambang, unlike Phnom Penh, doesn't have much international influence, very little international influence. It's it's very uniquely Cambodian. So, um, you know, that's where she grew up and and you know, she had an eighth grade education and um she sold fruits and boiled snails in the local market. You know, she lived, you know, a very simple life, but the one thing about her is she loved to listen to the radio. She, she was really obsessed with these, um, at that time were more like ayai singers, which is kind of like a, a folk singing technique where a male and female singer do a call and response kind of technique that was popular in the 1940s and 50s. So that's what she would have grown up listening to and she loved it. And she would imitate these singers from the radio to her friends at school. And she was this very small kind of timid, humble girl so when she opened her mouth, people were stunned. People were shocked that this girl had this talent. And um, I think her talent was at a level that it was almost inevitable that something was going to emerge from this. And when she was a teenager, she started winning, winning all these local singing contests and the local military ensemble hired her to you know, sing with them. And people started hiring her for their events around the town. And uh, you know, she finally was discovered by the national radio. And when she was very young, she relocated to the big city. And, um, you know, her, she was raised by a single mom at this point that the dad had left the family and the mom was supportive of it. She allowed it, but you got to remember that at that time, most teenagers had to hide the fact that they wanted to be musicians from their parents, because that was not, that was not seen as something you're, you, it's not like I want to be a teacher. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a civil servant. It was like, I want to, I want to play guitar in front of drunk people at a bar. You know, that, that was not, it was, it was a very conservative time. And that was not, that, that was seen as like a joke. Like that's not right. a serious career. And, and, it, for, and it would also mean go, women and it would also mean going to the capital. It would mean going to Phnom Penh, yes. which for many rural yes. Cambodians is, you know, another world and, and a scary world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But she did her, her mother, she and her mother uh, went to the big city and she got a job at the national radio. Um, And then in 1967, she had her first big hit called Stung Kyo, which means Blue River. And ironically, uh, she used to sing at a place in Batambang called the Blue River Bar. And then her first hit was Blue River. It was just kind of this very strange coincidence. But um, Anyhow, uh, she uh, attracted the interest, not romantic, but professional interest of Sinsisimut. And uh, 
being his singing partner, he was already a, a well-established celebrity, um, whereas she didn't know anybody. You know, she was not a society person by any means, uh, whereas people like Sinsisimut had, you know, the highest level connections. He was friends with the royal family and was a medical aide to the royal family. And, you know, he had, he's college educated and so on, medical school. So, um, you know, this elevated her profile quite a bit. Um, she attracted the accolades of Noradam Sihanouk himself and won an award uh, at his film festival. So, um, you know, by the late 60s, she was a celebrity and she recorded hundreds of songs, something like 500 songs, maybe more. I don't think anyone has an official count, but um, it's, it's incredible. She would literally record a song a day, sometimes two songs a day. And it was, it was just like a factory uh, of, and, and, you know, when, when you have that factory method of making music, I mean, it's not all great. A lot of it is kind of repetitious, but there are just so many gems. It's just so many gems. And the songwriting was excellent. You know, the, the composers really knew what they were doing. And, um, you know, they were very well orchestrated. Some of the songs are very lush and orchestrated, especially the music sound, uh, the film soundtrack stuff. Um, what, 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 what was and, the style? Uh, you know, she was, what was the style she was working in at that point? Um, in the the late sixties, is it? Um, I mean, they're, they're, it's it's overwhelmingly love songs. Um, is it? She, is it? She rock? became is synonymous. It... Yeah, she became mostly synonymous with like tragic love ballads. Mm -hmm. Like I've been jilted by my lover, and I'm so sad, and I'm wandering the rice fields and crying into my krama, and you know all this kind of stuff. But I mean, you know, there was a lot of that, that kind of hokey. Um, you know, romance, tragic romance stuff. But even by the late 60s, um, her catalog was very diverse. I mean, she was doing rock. She was doing Rombong. She was doing Sarawan, which are more, you know, traditional styles. And she was doing uh, the ballads. She was doing Latin music, cha-cha-cha, bolero. I mean, it was all over the place. They were very experimental um, yeah. at that time. You know, it, it's amazing. Like you listen to her, you listen to Sinsisimut, Penran. They were all over the map in terms of style. Anything goes. And they were also doing cover songs. You know, they were doing cover songs of famous American and British uh, songs. Like she did Proud Mary. She did uh, Wooly Bully. She did um, Venus, to name a few. Yeah. And she even, I, I forget what song, she sings a song in English and it's its, it's very funny. Um, but um, yeah, she might've even done some French stuff too. You know, the, the catalog's just so big, it's it's hard to tackle. But I mean, yeah, stylistically, it was they would throw everything at the wall, and which is kind of cool. Like there were there was no limitation. They would experiment with anything, and they would take different styles and combine them. And that was that's the most exciting stuff. Like if they would take American rock and roll and combine that with you know traditional Khmer, you know Pinpiet elements or Rombong elements, and put that together, it's really cool. And you know that's that's the stuff that I think makes that music scene so special. It was just like this kind of magical moment in music history. Yeah, absolutely. And um, could you say a few words about her, her personal life? I mean, she, she marries a musician and um, it, in, in some ways her personal life mirrors these, these tragic ballads, these, uh, these love songs that, um, that she's singing. Yeah. And perhaps that's why her emotion feels so authentic in some of those songs, because uh, her personal life was very difficult. Um, and I think being a young female singer in that environment at that time uh, was very challenging. And I, a lot of people took advantage of it. Um, her first husband 
he started kind of uh, putting the moves on her very early when she was working at the radio. He was an established singer named Somat. And his career never really took off too much relative to some of the other musicians. And I think he became very jealous of what was happening with her because she was younger and, and so on. But, you know, they got married and their marriage only lasted something like six months. And he became very abusive and physically abusive. And um, she went back to her family in Batambang. And, you know, they said, do not go back to that guy. Just why don't we forget the singing career? This is this is a bad, bad scene. And so for a while, she's, she considered she's gone, that. She's she gone to gonna... the Capitol and has become is becoming a star and then has this horrible, uh, abusive uh, marriage and then leaves and goes back to the country side, right? And is is turning her yeah, back they got on. The, they got yeah, they had a nasty divorce, and the yeah. you know Soma was like threatening her. It was it was horrible. Yeah, and which is so scandalous I for this conservative really society. Scum- yeah, yeah, there's a lot of stigma for the woman, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. when that happens, which which is backwards. But um, so she, I, I think she was embarrassed, and and she wanted to to hide, and and so she went back home, and and she was considering just going back to where she started and, and just living the quiet life as a, you know, as a, as a farmer in her hometown. But what happened, and this is, this is kind of an interesting story is since this drove all the way out there and said to her, what are you doing? He's like, you can't, you can pretend you're a farmer all you want. That's not what you are. It's like, you know, in your bones who you are and, and uh, come back and sing. He's like, he's like, I'll take care of so much because they were friends and, and, you know, Sintissimo would promise her, he's like, I'll make sure he leaves you alone, but but you need to come back and, and we need to keep doing what we're doing. You're too you're you're too talented and, and you should really think about this because I mean, that, you, you that, really gotta be true to who you are. Yeah, that's so that's so amazing. It's so cinematic that like, you know, she has this horrible yeah. relationship, returns to the countryside, and then you know, the Elvis of Cambodia drives all the way across the country. I mean, out in you know, that's a that's a long drive, especially yeah. in those days. And then, you know. Yeah, so I think, I, think come it, back. I think it yeah, so I think it speaks to how um you know Sinsisimut recognized how talented she was and how people loved her and and you know in that story I get you know her sister told me that story Rossabun is her only surviving sibling at this point she's now 83 years old. Um but yeah she told me that story and then Sinsisimut's granddaughter who got the story from her grandmother told me the same story. So uh yeah there, there's truth to that. So anyhow, um, it worked and she went back to the capital and uh, things were going well. And she met another guy who um, he was like a son of a rich family that owned a bunch of businesses, including a recording studio and a, I think a record company, too, depending who you, you ask. But um, they worked together in the studio and, you know, fell in love. They did not get married. Um, his parents did not want him marrying a divorced woman. Mm. So, but they had a kid. And so now it gets complicated because his family really did not like her. And um, this got even more complicated because after the coup, um, the military had a lot of uh, influence. If I can play historian uh, right now, this is 1970. um, You start to have the uh, Cambodian civil war brewing and uh, um, the prime minister and uh, top general Lon Nol uh, leads a coup against uh, Prince Sihanouk, the head of state, and pushes Sihanouk out. Um, 
still a lot of academic debate whether or not the United States knew about this ahead of time, how involved the CIA was. We that's a whole kettle of fish there, but it was a very welcome development in uh, for the Nixon administration. And uh, Lon Knoll was this right winger who was just anti-communist, 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 and especially anti-Vietnamese, and uh, was willing to work with the United States in um, suppressing both the local communist movement, but also working against the um, the North Vietnamese supply lines, the famous Ho Chi Minh Trail that's coming through uh, the eastern Cambodia. And so that's when we start to see the uptick in the American involvement. Um, so you have both the domestic military repression of Lon Knoll and then the increase in American bombing and um, uh, uh, that, that, that eventually leads to something like a third of the country becoming refugees. Sorry to interrupt professional obligation as a historian. <laughs> I got to do that. Okay. Oh, so, the, the, the context is important. So, yeah. So, so, so 1970, what, what does this mean for, for, uh, for her life? Well, Professionally speaking, it, it was different because the national radio was no longer a viable option. And in fact, the, the new government said to all the musicians, I think they rounded them all up to come in and said, you can no longer you know, record or perform or play anything that was recorded prior to this day. Um, nothing that makes any mention of Cambodia as a kingdom or the royal family or any of this kind of stuff. And in fact, if, if you start writing songs about you know, how great the new government is, join the army, Sihanouk's terrible, he's a Vietnamese puppet, so on, uh, you know, we'll, we'll give you these little perks. And um, a lot of musicians and actors were encouraged to join the army and function as propaganda pieces. And that, that's exactly what happened to her. But the way it came to her was at this time, uh, there was this very prominent general, Sreya, who... Uh, he was in charge of a uh, airborne uh, brigade, yeah, airborne brigade, uh, uh, and and he was, you know, these generals spent more time in the nightclubs than they did on the battlefield, <laughs> and so he he took a liking to Rosaray Satia, despite being married and having his own family. You know, he said, "Oh, I could have a little play thing on the side." And that's what happened is, depending who you ask, he kind of forced her into this coercive relationship. And through that, she was recruited into the army and became a paratrooper, you know, pretty much for, for show. You know, she wasn't a combat soldier, but, you know, it's no coincidence that she was always filmed and photographed uh, at these air shows. And... Um, it, it was basically like, look, you know, your favorite celebrities are joining the army to fight the Vietnamese. So you should too, you know, that was kind of the, the messaging. And so she was, she was doing that and she would sing at all these uh, uh, army events in Phnom Penh and also in the provinces, like performing for the soldiers in the field. Um, so that was going on throughout the seventies. And supposedly this general uh, told her boyfriend that he, he should clear out under threat so and the, the 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 parents didn't like her anyway so it was kind of a a win-win for from from this guy's perspective so the the guy took off to france so she's now left with this baby and this abusive relationship with a general who's extremely powerful and so it, it's just you know her it's just it was awful and 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 i think because of that situation she wrote her only song. Rosario Satia actually only wrote one song. 
And uh, the song she wrote at that time was called Chiam Kamau, which means black blood. And it was about that whole situation, you know, without she didn't spell it out literally. But, you know, if you if you read the lyrics and you understand what was going on in her life at that time, it's like, oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, she was very hurt by all of this. And then, uh, you know, by 1975, of course, it was obvious who was going to win. And um, when uh, when the uh, Khmer Rouge took Phnom Penh, uh, the the well, from what I gather, she, her mother and a couple of her siblings were forced out of the city into the uh, southwest uh, province called Kampong Spu, which is a, a rural province. And at some point along the way, her, her young son died, probably of starvation or disease. And then um, in the labor camp, I found the village where she died during the Khmer Rouge and spoke with uh, the older women there who did remember her. And it was one of those things where they knew a little too much. They, they knew too many names uh, that, that if they if they were making this up, there's no way they would have known all these little details. And they just knew too many details. And it, would, it was just an odd coincidence. Um, so according to them, uh, she ended up in yet another abusive relationship in the labor camp uh, with a guy who was a former Lanal soldier who came back to his home village and then he he was like a community leader. So the Khmer Rouge used him to kind of lead this labor camp. And then he liked her. They had this bad relationship. The relationship started attracting attention. And uh, so ultimately that whole group, her, this guy, her mother and siblings disappeared one night. Hmm. Um, but apparently was it, was it she one of was the... made to sing. They was it one of the forced marriages? Do you know? Because the Khmer Rouge infamously had would do these forced marriages, or is that I mean, the, yeah, the, 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 the history it, of actually what happened to the Khmer Rouge is still very underdeveloped, and and things varied from province to province. I mean, the Southwest actually, I, I don't take this the wrong way, but was a little better off than like Eastern Cambodia. The repression was not quite as bad. It was still awful. Don't get me wrong, but there were, I think there were more possibilities for survival strategies. Well, from what I gather, they figured out who she was they, and I'm sure she it, was yeah. trying to hide it, but they figured it out Yeah, and, and they used it. So much like the Lundahl government, they used her to, to sing their, you know, communist propaganda at the labor camp. Mm hmm uh, but despite that, there apparently was still too much trouble between her and this guy. And they were both former Lanal soldiers. And so once the there there came a point in the Khmer Rouge where the paranoia went through the roof. Yep, absolutely. And they started to suspect that everyone was a spy and this and that. So I, that didn't help either. So who knows what the exact circumstance was. But in any case, she disappeared one night and they never saw her again. So and this is and that about was probably, 77? 77, yeah. 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 yeah, so two years in, so about two years in, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so how did so, you? And that how, was. Um, how did you do the the research? No, go on, on how did you do the research on her life? I mean, it, and it's it it it's so difficult. I mean, you you went out to the provinces, you did interviews with the family, I and mean, there's a, a handful of survivors. Yeah, the 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 biggest challenge is that, the official documentation of her life is extremely scarce. I mean, there's literally one French uh, magazine interview. There's, I wanna get this right, I think three film clips of her and all three are silent. Um, 
and that's it. That's all you got. Um, so it's all oral history. And the problem is human memory, as you probably know, is extremely unreliable. I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. So can you imagine trying to recount events from 50 to 60 years ago and you pile on top of that the traumatic experiences associated with these memories, you know, because anyone telling you these stories is a Khmer Rouge survivor. Um, so it's very difficult. And what I found was, you know, you could interview two or three primary sources who all knew her, knew her personally and knew her well, but they would tell you two to three completely contradicting versions of the same event. So, you know, then it becomes, well, what do you do with that? And, yeah. and, you know, the, the, sometimes you would interview the same person in two interviews and they would give you two different stories about the same thing. You know, in interview one, they told you this happened. Interview two, polar opposite. So, you know, it was really about just looking at everything as logically as possible and saying what makes the most sense here. And, you know, that was, that was the biggest challenge. But um, in terms of the research, yeah, I mean, the, my, my, best primary source by far is her sister, Rosa Bun, um, who I met for the first time in 2007. And uh, she's fantastic. And she's been so supportive of this whole thing throughout. And um, she's still with us, still 83 years old, and she's doing pretty well. She's, you know, she's getting up there, but, um, you know, still doing pretty well. Um, uh, I met with um, this really amazing guy who's passed away since, um, he was a professional colleague of hers at the National Radio of Cambodia. He was a composer and a saxophone player, Hang uh, Hor Bang, and uh, they worked together for years. And uh, he was really great about filling me in on how the music industry worked. Like, how did the radio work? How did the record companies work? He had all that insight. So that was really great to get more the uh, the music industry side of things, you know. And uh, I was fortunate to interview uh Sosavun, who's still alive she was another singer from the what's called the golden era which is like the 60s and 70s um she was a little younger than Satya so she didn't know her that well but she she did know her and, and did have some some good insight um another person who was a great source was uh, this woman Sang Batum who was an actress in the 70s uh who was also uh one of Rosarai Satya's best friends and the story with her is is amazing um so we were in the middle of creating the graphic novel. And it's amazing how when I started the research 2006, 2007, the, the resources were, were this. And with social media, things started popping up left and right. And it was, it was really uncanny. So we're in the middle of the graphic novel in this new film clip never seen before gets unearthed in Cambodia of Rosarai Satya. And it's her performing with the army in Phnom Penh at Wat Phnom, I think in 1971 or two. And she's in uniform and she's singing and on a stage in front of all these people. And there's a woman next to her dancing also in an army uniform. So of course I share this on Facebook and I'm like, oh my God, my head's exploding. Like, look at this new film clip that just surfaced of Rosarai Satya. This is like earth shattering. And so my Cambodian friends start weighing in on it. And uh, one of my friends from Long Beach says, hey, that's my aunt next to her. No and way. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> and, he, and he's like, yeah, that's my aunt, Sang Batum. And I was like, uh, is she around? And he's like, yeah, she's she lives down the street from me in Long Beach. 
I jumped in my car and and hightailed it down to Long Beach. Next thing you know, I'm spending two hours with this woman in her apartment. Just man, she's you know telling me all these incredible stories about her and Satya from the '70s. And this is we're mid graphic novel at this point, so I had to do a bunch of rewrites. And I mean, it was just it was incredible. So oh, that's while so this fantastic. thing was happening, yeah. like. Yeah, all this all this new stuff was coming up. And that was just one example, but that's one of my favorite examples. So that was really incredible. And and I believe she's going to be at our book launch in October. So that's going to be really special. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So um yeah. I mean you you noted that there's there's some mystery. Um we we don't you know, you you only have so much documentation and you know, for me as a historian, uh that you know, plunges me into an existential crisis and but you're you're working in a different genre here and you're um you're you're very clear that you you fictionalize um the last uh the last portion of her life and and her death and um um how did you how did you go about that and um like what sort of decisions did you make and um uh just I mean tell tell me about that process because you you create a a death narrative here that is you know it a story. And again, this, this is where it moves into being more of a graphic novel than a graphic history. Right. Yeah. I mean, at the, we're never going to know what happened to her. I mean, we, we know, but you know, what were the circumstances? We, we don't know exactly because of that, you know, did I want to depict her getting into abusive relationship number four in this graphic novel? I, I don't feel that that serves her story. I, I think this is, as I said before, you know, to me, she represents the, like a soul of humanity, you know, humanity's soul. And to me, that's what that's what I wanted to capture in that ending is that she was a, you know, the Khmer Rouge wanted to repress everybody's humanity. Everyone is a robot, a worker, you know, producing rice and that's it. No, no questions asked and you take orders. And but, um, you know, she represents what it is to be human. And to me, that's what the that, that's the ending that the story needed was to highlight what she represents and you know i don't want to necessarily spoil the ending here for for those who haven't read the book but um you know for me it was about how how does music and how does this person's what, what this person has given to us how does that legacy outlive the horror and the tyranny you know and that's what it was about there, there's a spirit that goes beyond the tragedy that lives to this day and inspires people to this day. And to me, that's what I wanted to capture in the end. So is it literally what happened? No, of course not. But I think poetically speaking, it is what happened. So that's what was important. And that is, yeah, you know, with the graphic novel medium, I mean, it's a, it's a, a dramatization of a, of a real person's life, but there's so many you know, there's so many gaps, you know, do I know what she talked about with, with Sinsisimut on this day? Of course not. But, you know, we we have the gist of, you know, her relationships. We have the gist of her career. And, um, you know, if, if we speak to the spirit of what it was about and what it what what it is left with us, you know, that to me is what was important. Yeah. You know, I, I think you 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 again, I don't, I don't want to do any spoilers, but you you did, I think, really capture that uh, that spirit of, of freedom. And it's really, really um, a touching um final final chapter there um one of the things that's really innovative about the book is that you've it's it's a it's a book but it's got a soundtrack so you um in a really i think really smart and clever way um created a playlist 
Uh, and there's a QR code in the book. So you, you hit it with your, your smartphone in the beginning. And then you uh, it, in the book, there's little cues that tell you when to start and stop uh, the various songs. Um, could you tell us about that? And maybe um, talk about your collaboration with the um, the music archivist, uh, Rotanak Om? Yeah. I mean, how do you tell Rosaray Satya's story without music? You right. know? Oh, I mean, that's... <laughs> that's, that's what she left that, you know, that's her, that's her gift to us, you know? So um, for me, it was like, this is essential. We got to make this happen. You know, if you do a movie, it's easy. You put it on the soundtrack, but a book, what do you do? So I was thinking about it and I said, well, why not? You know, we could have a playlist and it's synced to the thing and there's indicators to tell you where the songs go. So that like a movie, there is a soundtrack that's synced to the story. So you know, if she's singing in the in the nightclub, you can hear what she's singing, right? If she's in the recording studio, you can hear what she's singing. And then we place other cues just for the emotional impact of the scene. She just has so many good songs, and that was the hardest part. It's like, <laughs> if I didn't have an editorial brain, there'd be 600 songs on the soundtrack. So, you know, we really had to make some hard decisions there, but... Um, you know, I wanted to hit some of the key, you know, she has her hit songs that everybody knows, and it was important to include that stuff, but also some deep cuts too. But um, there's a really great organization uh, called the Cambodian Vintage Music Archive. And uh, there's this guy, Ratanak Um, who kind of spearheads this organization. He's from Phnom Penh. Uh, he now lives in Florida. And he has just over, since he was a like 12 year old or something like that, just accumulated this mass of original recordings, whether they be vinyl records or the original uh, eight tracks. So the the striking thing about this is usually the Cambodian music from the golden era that you're going to hear now is severely bootlegged, meaning it's been dubbed down, you know, many times and it's been overdubbed with keyboards and drum machines and these cheesy effects. So you're not getting an authentic representation of what that music sounded like at that time but with the cambodian vintage music archive they restore these original recordings with no overdubs and no loss of quality so when you are used to hearing the bootlegs and then you hear the originals it's like oh my god it's crisp it's beautiful it's it's amazing so i was really taken with this and the the other thing i like about uh, ratonic is he does also take care of the families of the musicians which is an innovative thing because that music has just been bootlegged and exploited for decades. I mean, if you turn on any TV channel in Cambodia, they're just running those songs 24-7 on the karaoke channels. And the, sadly, the families don't see anything from it. So that was nice. And, you know, he has a relationship with, with Rosaray Satya's family. And, you know, so that made me feel really good about this whole thing. And, uh, yeah, so he, Ratonic was great because licensing that music is, as you can imagine, very strange <laughs> so but we 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 did it the official way where you uh you license it from the government of cambodia and uh also from the the music archive you get the masters from them and then the performance rights or the, the publishing rights sorry from uh from the ministry of culture but um yeah he he, he was very helpful guiding me through that because there's no way i would have been able to figure that out so um we got it done and uh you know, it's like, to me, it was like, how do you imagine the movie Bohemian Rhapsody without Queen on the soundtrack? You know, it's just like, it doesn't work. And so it, to me, it was just, it was absolutely essential. So I'm, I'm, I'm really glad. And the feedback from Cambodia, where the book's already out, 
that's one of people, everyone's favorite things is the streaming soundtrack. I always get messages about that. So I'm, I'm really glad we took the time and effort to, to make it work. Yeah, no, I, I think it's fantastic innovation. And, um, uh, I didn't show it to anybody, but I, I, I told an editor of a prominent historical journal who is, who's there's, who's sort of with the team that's sort of shepherding that journal into a new digital era and they're not quite sure how to do things. And he's like, Oh my God, that is absolute genius. Um, and I think it works so well. And, and, and also with the, with the graphic genre, um, you know, the, the reader, you know, you, you read things, you read the text, but then you, you take some time to, to look at the images and the images in this book are just absolutely gorgeous. And then to do that with the music and just sort of have these moments of sort of contemplating this depiction of um, uh, these incredible Cambodian um, rock stars um, and, and then listen, listen to their voices. It's just, I thought it was a fantastic experience. I mean, and bravo. Um, one of the other things I was really impressed with uh, was the, uh, the recreation of the urban life in Phnom Penh. And the the real vibrancy and the, and I recognize some of the buildings. Um, so you worked with uh, Kat Bauman on this, um, and you also had a designer, Cindy Seuss. Um, um, you know what? How how did you work with the artist in in sort of designing uh, the the storyboard and the pages that recreate um, you know uh, the golden era of Phnom Penh? Right. Yeah. Th I mean, to me, that capturing that atmosphere. And the architecture, which I'm a big architecture fan. <laughs> so capturing the ar architecture of Phnom Penh at that time was so important to me because it was so unique. And again, unfortunately, a lot of it's starting to disappear, which is terrible. But the way it worked is I had done, I had storyboarded out the book in a pretty rudimentary style. I'm not a illustrator by any means. So then Kat came in, did an amazing job you know, translating my stick figures into these beautiful illustrations. And um, I also uh, amassed this gigantic database of images, like archival photos and video clips um, of Cambodia, because, you know, it's not just the architecture, it's what did people wear? What kind of cars did they drive? What did the military equipment look like? What did the recording studio look like? What kind of guitars were they playing? What was the hairstyle? What was the food? I mean, you go right down the list. I mean, it just gets so specific. And Cambodia, as you know, is so specific. You know, it's not. And that's something, you know, a lot of Hollywood movies and stuff, when they depict it, you know, drives my friends crazy. If if there's a scene in Cambodia and they're wearing the Vietnamese hats or something, it, it's just like, <laughs> you know, but it, you know, so it, it's, it's very particular. Um, and so, you know, we work from a huge, huge, archive of, of images and um you know i wanted to show specific things like chaktamuk theater the royal palace wat panam um you know all Ch those chaktamuk you know, the theater Tata is Bum one of those statue. Uh, yeah chaktamuk theater is one of those von molivan um buildings that's just so striking yeah yeah so it, it was important for me to to have those uh those touchstones in there um and then you know we i had this huge database of pictures of rosary satia you know, and the cool thing about her is she had so many hairstyles and, and so many cool outfits. I mean, she uh, she she really had so many looks over the years. And that was fun to play with, too, is, you know, the beehive hair, the long straight hair, the short hair, uh, the uh, what do you call it? The bouffant like Jackie Kennedy hair. I mean, she she really did it all. And that was a lot of fun to play with, too. 
And then some of the characters, you know, that there's either no pictures of them or there's like one picture of them, like one bad picture of them. I mean, we had, I think, one picture of Sreya, the general. We had one picture of her brother. So some of it was tough, but, um, you know, we made do with with what we had. Yeah, well, the, the end result's fantastic. And it's, it, it, I mean, it's on its own, it's visually stunning and really draws you in. And then you've got that soundtrack that just, make, you know, takes it up to a... The next level. Um, one of the things I want to ask you again, as historian here, um, I, I think the book is just fantastic in doing this job of capturing Cambodian agency and and Cambodians, you know, charting their own lives and particularly her her decisions and so forth. I mean, this is, you know, so uh, you know, the the goal of good historians, right? Um, especially in this era of Cold War Southeast Asia where so much of the time the historical writing is about, well, the Americans did this, the, you know, the CIA did this and, and the agency is uh, placed in, in the hands of the Americans and Cambodians are really acted upon. How'd you sort of balance that? Cause I mean, it's, it's, it's undeniable that Cambodia gets acted upon in a really horrific way by the United States between 1970, 1975 with the bombing, with the, the military involvement. And you've got, you've got a couple of characters that, that symbolize the American military presence. But how'd you, you know, how'd you approach that balance between um, Cambodian agency and the um, uh, the United States and, and Cold War um, politics, you know, devastating this country? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I, as an American writer, um, and, you know, my father is a veteran of the Vietnam War, I, I just naturally have a lot of interest in how, the American government was involved in this. And, you know, most, so it was important for, I knew the book was going to come out in the United States and a lot of people here are going to read it. And I want to make it clear to people, this didn't happen in a vacuum, you know, that, that, that we were involved in, in these events, literally involved in how this thing unfolded. And, you know, I think a lot of Americans nowadays probably don't even understand our involvement in Vietnam, never mind Cambodia, where, it, it, was, it was a lot of it was kind of backdoor stuff. Um, and, and so I wanted to to get into that a little bit in the graphic novel, but I didn't want it to overshadow her story, but I did want to give it some context. Um, and like you said, I, I didn't want it to feel like, you know, when, when, you, when you see the Americans now they're taking over and this is their story. It was more about how is this impacting the A story? You know, and I didn't I also didn't want it to be this cartoonish thing of the Americans coming in and, you know, just funneling weapons to the corrupt government. I wanted to put a human face on it and uh, to show the folly of it, because there's there's tragedy there, too. When you had all these guys in Vietnam and Cambodia servicing this dead end venture that was just getting a lot of people killed and that ultimately was a complete failure. And it's just it's so tragic. And I, I wanted to show a little bit of that, too. Um, and I think the, what happened in Cambodia is, is, is the perfect example of, of um, the, the pattern that you see in American foreign policy, whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan or Vietnam, you know, Cambodia is just yet another example of this. But um, when I was researching, you know, the, the more academic side of the research with the books and the documentaries, I started to hear about this program called MedTech military equipment delivery team Cambodia. And it was a secret military program operating out of the American embassy in Phnom Penh. And basically what they were doing behind closed doors was bringing in just plane after plane of military equipment and handing it to the Lung Nol government who were unbelievably corrupt. And so 
this was just prolonging the civil war and in in the weapons were falling into the wrong hands the the bombing raids were hitting the wrong targets i mean it was just it was a disaster um so i started scouring uh veteran military uh, uh veteran organizations in the united states for guys who had served in medtech so i finally found a retired air force colonel in pasadena california and uh, I sent him an email. I said, hey, you know, this was back in 2007. I said, I'm doing research on this Cambodian singer and I'm interested in US involvement in Phnom Penh at that time. Um, would you mind speaking with me? And I think a week later, I got an email from the Pentagon asking why I wanted to talk to this guy and what I was going to ask him. <laughs> this, this guy's retired. I couldn't believe He's it. retired, but the yeah. Pentagon's stepping in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was 30 years after the fact. And, and so uh, I explained what I was doing and they said, okay. And then the guy emailed me and then I went to his house in Pasadena and, and he was great. And he told me all about the secret military program that was operating out of Phnom Penh at that time. And that became the basis of that little subplot in the graphic novel is everything he told me that he experienced. So hmm. even these little details like um, his assistant falling in love with the maid at the house they were staying at. And then when they got evacuated and he had to leave, you know what's going to happen to her. And it's just, it, to me, that that little moment kind of encapsulates the larger picture of what was going on. It, it's like you, 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 it's like this false pretense that we're going to help you. And then, nope, sorry, we're out. So. Yeah, no, I, I thought that, I thought yeah, you dealt I, with I just, that really yeah. well. Yeah, that that balance between those two forces. And oh, that's yeah. uh, that's great. You interviewed this this retired officer. Yeah. Yeah. I got lucky with that one. And it just fascinating stuff, you know, from that interview. And it's, it's an aspect of uh, the Vietnam war. That's just, I think very overlooked, but, but, you know, very yeah. telling. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, fortunately uh, Anthony Bourdain of all the good stuff he did was actually alert a lot of American uh, uh, viewers uh, in his Cambodia episode to, um, to sort of the horrors of that war. He's got that incredible quote about, yeah wanting to beat henry kissinger to death um <laughs> who's still alive that. who's still with us. Uh, but anyway we don't, need, we don't need to go there sure, sure. non-partisan here um okay so you've been you've been really generous with, with your time but i've got uh two questions before i let you go these are the the classic new books uh debriefing questions um first can you recommend two books uh for the audience yeah i mean i'll i'll stick with kind of our our wheelhouse here um if you're interested in graphic novels specifically about Cambodia, um, there's a great graphic novel called Year of the Rabbit, um, written by Tien Vietzna. Um, he's a French Cambodian. Uh, he was a child during the Khmer Rouge, and it's the story of what his family went through. Uh, very, very powerful book. Um, and again, if, if you know if the Golden Voice interests you, I can't imagine you not being interested in, in year of the rabbit. Um, yeah. Year of the rabbit's fantastic. I, I yeah. teach, I teach it at Sacramento state. Okay. And um, it, I, I, he did an incredible job with that. Yes. Chasing yeah. And the I, family. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I became uh, kind of internet friends with him after that. And, you know, we talk all the time and keep each other posted on how our, how our work's going. So oh, we'll, we'll tell him there's a professor in California that loves teaching his novel. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I'll pass that along. He'll be really excited to hear that. Yeah. Um, Another book on this subject, uh, there's a British author, Dee Piak, who put out a book recently called uh, Away from Beloved Lover, which is a comprehensive history of 
Cambodian rock, and it focuses on a few specific musicians, including our our heroine, Rosa Raisatia. So um, she also met with her sister, Rosa Bun and Batam Bahang, and, you know, got the story. So, you know, her okay. book... Her book's a bit more in the vein of uh, the documentary, Don't Think I've Forgotten, more of an, a comprehensive overview of the music scene. So if, if you want to get more information, um, I would recommend that book. And I would also definitely recommend watching Don't Think I've Forgotten. Yeah, that's yeah. A, that's an incredible film. What, what's the name of that second book one more time? Away from Beloved Lover. Away from Beloved Lover. Great. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, jump in here and throw out a recommendation um, that I think that fits well with this. And it was a project that I was involved with. Um, the book's called I am Omri and it is the survivor memoir of the Cambodian national kickboxing champion who was championed from the late sixties into the early seventies and had to go into hiding in, um, uh, or, or, well, he, he had to hide his identity after April 17th, 1975. And he talks about surviving the, the killing fields and hiding his celebrity, sometimes using it. Um, and then he, he escapes from a camp and he, he goes into the, um, the Maquis, the, the resistance in Cambodia, and then survives the, um, the refugee, uh, refugee camps and makes, and then the last part of the book is about the diaspora experience. And he eventually makes his way to Long Beach and founds one of the first kickboxing academies in California and does gang intervention. And then there's a whole other story there. But I, I think that it's such a great pairing with your book because it gets into both um, these survival narratives, but also really looks at that incredible cultural moment of uh, Cambodia in the late 1960s and early 1970s, especially Phnom Penh, where there was this cultural effervescence and so, I mean, just so much dynamism that, um, you know, gets left out of so many historical narratives for for obvious reasons. Cambodia is not a big country and and also the the horrors of the Khmer Rouge sort of overshadow everything. But uh, yeah, you know, that, yeah, that's kind of a key point is uh, I didn't want the Khmer Rouge to become the focal point of the book because they're always the focal point. Anytime an outsider is depicting Cambodian history, it's that's how I that's the only thing I knew about Cambodia uh, going into this was Khmer Rouge and Angkor Wat. And that was it. And it's 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 unfortunate because, like you said, there's, you know, just the music alone from that era is so exciting. It's like, you know, wouldn't it be nice if that was a if that was a focal point? And that's, you know that's what I'm hoping we can start to work toward here. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so check out, I am Omri. Um, and then finally, what are you working on now and, and what can we hope to see from you next? Well, there is actually an exciting new development, uh, with the golden voice. Um, it is now being adapted as a stage play, a musical stage play in Cambodia. Um, and it's a group called Khmer arts action, and the play is going to be directed by uh, Sung Sapiak, and they'll start casting very soon. And um, I just finished a draft. Uh, you know, part of the challenge is adapting the script for the stage. You know, doing this live is very different from doing it in a, a script or a graphic novel format. So uh, that's going to start casting soon. And I believe that the play is going to premiere in March of 2024 at Chakdamuk Theater in Phnom Penh. So I'm really, really looking forward to that. It's going to be fantastic. Oh, so at, at the historic uh, Vine, I know, Vine yeah, Vine site? That's fantastic. It's perfect. It's perfect. And I, there's going to be a live band playing the music and it's going to be great. Oh, oh, wow. 
maybe I can get some funding to go attend that. <laughs> yeah, I'm planning to go for sure. I don't want I don't want to miss that. That's that's great. And then um also note that um the, the book is coming out in October of uh 2023 in English, but it has already been rolled out in Khmer in in Cambodian. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so um I was approached by a uh book editor and publisher out of Cambodia, uh Hut, and she uh was very I was so glad she reached out because I was aware of her um publishing company Avatar and before that she was involved with this other company Sipa um that brings in a lot of stuff from France um and I just I I had known about her work for a while and I said wow wouldn't it be amazing to to do the the Kamai language release with with someone like that and then I swear to god like a few weeks later I get an email from her and I was like this is this is the universe talking so um she did an incredible job translating the book and did this amazing rollout in Cambodia. She did this launch party in Phnom Penh at the Bopana Center, um, which is Riti Pan's uh, mm-hmm. audiovisual center in Phnom Penh. And I, I think like 500 people turned up and it turned into this huge dance party and they, they were playing the original vinyl records. And I couldn't go because my son was being born at that time. Uh, <laughs> But it, it was crazy. It's like I'm, my son's being born and I'm getting all this social media with all these people dancing and partying in Phnom Penh. <laughs> so it, was just, it was an incredible time. But um, yeah, the book's out in Cambodia. It's it's doing well there. And I get messages from a lot of young people. It, it's, it's really struck a chord with kind of the high school and college age demographic over there, which is really cool. It, it's really cool to see that. And it's also cool to see people's grandparents reading it, too. So um that's been really nice. So yeah, that, that came out in Cambodia, November, December, 2022. And then like you said, the English version will come out worldwide through humanoids uh, this October 10th, but it is available for pre-order now, not to, not to plug like a, like a you know carnival well, barker here. But... I hate to break it to you, but actually the whole premise of this podcast network is plug in your book. Well, then I don't feel bad about being a carnival barker. Okay. And and the nice, you know, the nice thing is, um, proceeds from the book do support Rosaricetia's family in Cambodia. So that's that's that's, yeah. that's something that that we're really happy about too. So that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Well, hey, um, Greg, thank you, Gregory, thank you so much for chatting with me. I I really really appreciate this, and I and I really appreciate the book. Cool. Well, Mike, thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast speaking with you, and and thank you for taking time to to highlight the book. I really appreciate it. It's nice to talk to someone who really knows the the world of the book and, and has a genuine interest in it. It's always really fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, so this has been a conversation with Gregory Cahill about his graphic novel, The Golden Voice, The Ballad of Cambodian Rock's Lost Queen, published by Humanoids in 2023. Kat Bellman was the artist for this absolutely stunning and gorgeous book. Uh, I'm Michael Van of California State University, Sacramento, and this has been an episode of New Books in History. Thank you for listening.